Welcome to the newest podcast from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, To Differ is Divine, with Bishop Sam Rodman and Rabbi Raquel Jurovics. I'm Summerlee Walter, producer of this podcast, and I'll be introducing each episode. To Differ is Divine grew out of the ongoing interfaith conversations between Bishop Sam, the Bishop Diocesan of North Carolina, and Rabbi Raquel, the diocese's rabbi in residence, and former leader of Yavna, a Jewish renewal community in Raleigh, North Carolina. As Rabbi Raquel says, if God wanted us all to be the same, we would all be the same. If it serves the divine purpose that we differ in our religious practices, then we have a responsibility to respond to that with an open heart. In this first episode, they explore what we're calling spiritual permeability, the invitation to look at the writings and practices of our respective faith traditions as a conversation between different expressions of God. Embracing spiritual permeability invites us not only into the life of the Spirit, but also into a dialogue as people of faith in a time of great divisions in this world. We believe these conversations are part of the divine gift, but I'll leave that to Rabbi Raquel and Bishop Sam to talk more about. Each episode will include detailed notes to provide additional context for the religious practices and concepts our hosts discuss. We hope you'll take the time to read them and learn a little bit more about an unfamiliar faith tradition, or maybe even your own faith tradition. With that, I invite you to enjoy episode one of To Differ is Divine from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. We are excited to be joining you for this first podcast. It's part of a series of conversations between me, Bishop Sam Rodman, here in the Diocese of North Carolina, and our rabbi in residence, Rabbi Raquel Jurovics. We have been engaged in conversation for quite some time in our diocese and in our life together as spiritual leaders, and we want to invite you into this conversation with us. We see ourselves on this journey as really spiritual ecological activists. We are engaging in not just the life of the Spirit, but the dialogue and conversation that the Spirit invites us into as people of faith in a particular time in human history where there are many challenges. And one of the challenges that we know that we face is the challenge of our differences. And we deeply believe that our differences are part of the divine gift. And it's part of what we celebrate as religious leaders, as people of faith, and as those who believe deeply that the movement of the Spirit is at the heart of every conversation. So we invite you to join us as we take a journey together with you. And we're going to begin with just some reflections from each of us about what it means to delve more deeply into the life of the Spirit from different faith perspectives and different faith traditions. So with that, I'm going to invite Rabbi Raquel, if you would offer just some of your thoughts about this deeper spiritual permeability. Thank you. It's such a joy to be with you and to have been part of the life of the diocese uh, for the last couple of years. One of the things that has struck me for a very long time, even before I ever heard any terminology around 
deep ecumenism or spiritual permeability, even interfaith, was the sense that looking at the natural world, which is so varied, that if God wanted us all to be the same, we would all be the same. And that there's a, a profound lesson in that, because if we accept the notion that it serves a divine purpose, that we differ in our religious practices, that we have available to us multiple theologies, if that does serve a divine purpose, then we have a responsibility to respond to that uh, with an open heart and more permeable boundaries than rigid boundaries. It seemed to me, even before I began trying to think systematically about this, that we have to be very careful not to put God in a box, not to think that any of our traditions, however rich they are, could possibly contain the entirety of divinity. And that the, the hubris that that implies uh, struck me even as a rather young person as somewhat uh, problematic. So I was extremely pleased to have the opportunity to begin the conversations that you and I have had over the past two plus years and the work that I've been able to do with congregations within the diocese and with other clergy and some of the, the deacons and certainly with individuals, particularly when doing programming in person around what, what does it mean in a sense to tend that garden of divine diversity? How do we become good stewards of the spiritual ecology of the planet? Uh, how do we condition ourselves to be less reactive and more curious about what goes on in each other's spiritual lives? I love that. And um, your invitation to be curious, to explore, to listen deeply to one another and to the movement and the calling of the spirit for me, resonates deeply with one way of understanding, interpreting, and appreciating the tradition of Scripture that we both share. One way of approaching our understanding of how God is speaking to us and showing up in the world is to use the scriptural context as a point of reference. And I'm I'm intrigued by the fact that we in our respective traditions have differing approaches to interpretation, but there are also areas in which we overlap quite a bit. And, um, and we can also look at the same passage and see it from different perspectives. And as you were saying a few moments ago, bring our respective truth to bear on the witness of that sacred text. And that just enriches it for each of us. And in a world where we are so polarized, particularly in this country right now, to be invited into conversation where we not only go deeper, but we go more broadly in what we learn from our, our respective perspectives, I think is an invitation that speaks deeply to a spiritual need that we share and to a deeper need that our community has right now to find a way to dialogue that does not result in um, diametrically opposed points of view that push us apart, 
but points of view that invite us to open up. So I, I love the invitation of curiosity and, and how that actually invites us to go deeper in our journey and in the conversation. I deeply appreciate the invitation to, to look at text and practice as, as if they were in conversation. There are, of course, at least two opportunities, and I hope that we'll get to talk about this in more detail in, in a later podcast, but one way for us to, to look at texts together is to pick a text from Hebrew scripture or from Christian scripture and to discuss it together from the viewpoint of adherence of the tradition that that scripture, that revelation serves. An alternative is to sit together and look at a selection from scripture from both of our traditions and exchange observations. What what am I reading in the opening of the book of John? What are you reading in the revelation of the burning bush to Moses before the Israelites are redeemed from Egypt? I think that, that there's much to be gained by accepting, and I have to admit that evolutionarily speaking, this was not an idea that I was comfortable with even six months or a year ago. I, I think one of the things that we're called to do is accept the idea that we can't replace the spiritual lens through which we see our respective revelations. There is no way I can put aside my Jewishness when I study Christian scripture. And it doesn't mean, however, that I don't find much that is enchanting and and rich and spiritually enlivening. I have great fun with the friends with whom I do that study. And at the same time, I think I need to let go of my expectation that there is any plausible way for a Christian to put aside a Christian lens and take Hebrew scripture in its own terms. Uh, We are the result of our lived experience. And part of what's delicious in having these dialogues of devotion, another topic we should expand on, is that we get used to hearing what the stuff that's dearest to us seems like to somebody else, because we're always going to find something new and and surprising in doing that, as long as we don't feel that either of us is serving as defender of our faith. That's not our job. Our job is to, to learn together and to be spiritually curious together and to appreciate the that God will do anything to get our attention. Mm, I love that. And um and the humility uh that comes with that approach is also I think very consistent with what both our traditions invite us into with respect to our connection with God and our relationship with God. The closer we draw to the holy and the holy one in our presence, the more we feel the gifts of grace, the gifts of possibility, the gifts of openness, and the opportunity to not be threatened by someone else's point of view, but to be invited into a greater understanding through that perspective. And that really helps, I think, to deconstruct some of the polarization that we were talking about a few minutes ago 
One one way that I feel drawn to also celebrate something that we said in terms of the divine gift of our difference is to use a story from scripture, specifically the Genesis story of creation. I spoke with a friend recently, Bishop up in Massachusetts, who talked about reading something that had been written through the orientation that the creation story invites us to a deeper understanding of the subtleties and the beauty of non-binary. And specifically, the creation story reads that there was darkness and then there was light the first day, paraphrasing, obviously. But of course, in between darkness and light, there's dusk, there's pre-dawn, there's dawn. There are lots of subtleties and much more beyond the simple light and darkness that are at the heart of the invitation of creation. And in like manner, the same writer talked about the separation between the waters and the dry ground. And of course, in between and amidst that separation are the estuaries, the salt marshes, the tidal pools. And what a richer, fuller understanding of the creation that God has given to us in which we find ourselves and in which we find one another and which we begin to understand the tremendous capacity and abundance of who God is and what God is offering. Abundance is is a significant word in in this context of, of the exploration of text and practice. The more we learn, the more we realize we need to learn, that we're called to learn. It's rarely the case that somebody who begins investigating a new subject matter and learns a few things doesn't wind up saying, wow, this is so much more complicated than I thought it was. And this is one of the great gifts of that that divine abundance that's put before us. I particularly appreciate calling out the non-binary nature of text that on its surface can be read as if it's setting up this's and that's that have to be held at a distance. That recognizing that the evening and the morning that constitute the first day have to have all of the other permutations of time and light that happen during a day. And there is a, a verse in the morning blessings that Jews recite I even like the, the the language better in the evening prayer that talks about God is the one who rolls evening into night and night into day in a way that nobody really can comprehend. And I, I that Ariv Aravim, the Hokmaputeh and Hasharim, the one who rolls evening into day, the one who arranges the stars and the celestial bodies according to a divine wisdom, and being reminded that this all has to happen. The moon has to wax and wane. We need that pause, that dark pause before each new month to understand that we're moving from one completion into a new potentiality. The same with the waters above and the waters below. Of course, we all studied the water cycle in grammar school, and it's right there in front of us in the text when we look at it. I think that creating opportunities to respond first at what we see that's new, even at the surface level, gives us an entree into looking more deeply into 
what we might find in texts when we apply Christian models of text interpretation and Jewish models of interpretation, which instruct us both in our own faith and also help us understand that sacred complexity in everybody else's. You're reminding me on something you said a few moments ago about learning and the invitation in God's abundance to keep learning. And, you know, we're all familiar with the phrase lifelong learner, but I think sometimes we forget the richness of that invitation in terms of what unfolds or unrolls, as you were saying a moment ago. And I love the poetry of that image. But that invitation to learning reminds me actually of a quotation from one of my high school classmates in our yearbook. She was the valedictorian of our class. And her senior quote was this. I don't remember my senior quote, but I remember hers. She said, (laughs) after all my years of learning, I know only one thing for certain, that nothing is for certain. And I'm not even sure of this. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I used to say that the only thing I learned as an undergraduate was how to use the library. (laughs) And, And I still miss card catalogs for the serendipity of some card that you weren't looking for, but that says, oh, wait a minute, you really need to track this down. There was something beautifully tactile and and embodied about that kind of learning. But yes, I think that this sense that the more we learn, the more we're aware of what there might be to learn is something that rather than being daunting, feels like an invitation. It it frees us from the fear of ever being bored. We're not going to run out of stuff to talk about or stuff to learn or to explore. I do have rather uh, vivid and slightly painful memories of my early interfaith encounters as a high school student and as a, an undergrad, clearly because we've been in conversation for a good bit of time now. It's not surprising to Bishop Sam that I'm not shy. So if somebody was looking to put together an interfaith panel, if they asked me, I would say yes. And what I came to learn the more I did this was I had best be careful what I assert my tradition means because I don't know enough. And I don't even think I know enough now to do anything but say, well, in terms of what I've learned so far, this is what I think is going on. And that whatever I say, take it as what I'm offering Not that it speaks for all Judaism through all time and into eternity, which would be a bit much, Uh, but that that early evolving recognition that the more we engage with others, the more questions we have for ourselves, and the more opportunities we have to dig more deeply into the, the vastness of our inherited traditions, and, and the more curiosity we develop about what other folks are offering to us, so that that initial response of, well, I have to explain to y'all why you're wrong, has to give way to something a little bit a little bit more open-hearted. Yes, so true. And it's interesting that you mentioned early conversations around interfaith dialogue and opportunities to listen and to learn from one another, and that you you named that it wasn't always easy, and in some instances, some of it was painful. And And I think that is also, anyone who's engaged in this work has had those moments. Sometimes it's inadvertent, which two things about that, of course, doesn't make it less painful and doesn't make it okay either. 
but the fact that if we can acknowledge that, and if I say something that is actually hurtful or offensive to you and to your tradition, you have the freedom to call me out. We have the opportunity to unpack that, to explore that, to examine it, to be more aware, and then to do things differently as a result of that learning. That is a part of the gift of this work, but it isn't always observed or always upheld the way it should be and the way it could be. The other piece that you underscored a few moments ago that I wanted to highlight again is that we often speak for ourselves. And how are we clear in speaking for ourselves that we're not purporting to speak for the whole tradition that stands behind us or the constituency? so to speak, that we represent? In what ways do we need, just to be clear, more often than not, that our perspective is our own? And it may be informed by our tradition, but it isn't necessarily speaking for or defined by our tradition. Even though I think it's highly unlikely that you would say something that I would find offensive personally or to my tradition, I would expect the same reciprocity from you, that I do have notoriously a rather wicked sense of humor. And sometimes I will make a casual joke involving somebody else's theology that may not be welcome or that I should know better than to make because it's not even theologically accurate. I think one of the things that happens in a a large multicultural society where there's a lot of looseness about belief systems and a lot of moving between systems, sometimes with very little information, is that for many Jews, what they think they know about Christianity is only what's out and about in the secular sphere. So the things I might have to say about, in a very denigrating way about the commercialization of Christmas, that's not a really accurate understanding of what Christmas means to people who are in fact Christian. It's what Christmas has to say to people who are buying and selling around the holiday. Same goes for Hanukkah, which has become much more commercialized over the past few decades, because the sales will be in proximity one to the other. So so why not? Uh, I think we have to be alert to the difference between the convenient shorthands that we toss about in casual conversation, where we may find ourselves without meaning to making fun of something that in its sacred reality is actually deeply resonant, deeply important to the person we're talking to. And we shouldn't be requiring each other to be indifferent when those things happen. One of the things that I'm most pleased about is that the title of our podcast series is To Differ is Divine, because I think one of the things that will be most interesting in our conversations is to find those theological points where we are each going to have to say, that's interesting and makes no sense to me. <laughs> interesting. And I'm never going to go there. And yet, hopefully, we get to the point where we can at least say, I appreciate that that is something that is deeply spiritually significant for you. We would not be serving that wholesome spiritual ecology if we required each of our traditions to somehow regularize itself around some other. Exactly. That's the kind of, I think, deeper conversation and, dare I use the word in a generic sense, communion that we're called to, I think, in 
interfaith dialogue and interfaith interaction. And that is a gift that I think is part of that celebration of the divine and the diversity and the differences that are such a rich part of who God has created us each and all to be. I'm wondering if we can come up with a, an example of either something from our tradition or something from a scriptural text and point of reference where we do see things quite differently and we can, as you said, appreciate that difference while honoring that it seems utterly strange. <laughs> I wonder, and I don't know, but I'll just launch out into this because we both in our respective traditions do have a relationship with those who have gone on before. Our ancestors, the saints, different nomenclatures, but speaking about the same body who really in, I think, both of our traditions are a living presence in some respect. And that's sometimes, I think, where the differences begin to surface. And I know you had a chance in one of our congregations recently to speak on All Saints Day. And I wonder if you would share with us some of your reflections on that from the perspective of your tradition. Sure, I'd be happy to. Although I think I would frame it a bit differently for our conversation in the sense that I didn't address the way in which the question you're raising about how do we interact with our ancestors, you know, does it mean anything in, in Jewish terms to talk about the communion of the saints or the way in which we may honor our departed family members and close ones, beloveds, teachers, and so on. Mm. So one of the things I would want to say in, in our context is that since the Shoah, since the, the Holocaust, some of the topics of profound spiritual import that Judaism has always had a great deal to say about these topics were neglected because they were so painful. So mm -hmm. growing up, I can tell you that even though I was aware of my parents' practice of remembering deceased family members on the anniversary of their death and also at the points in the liturgical calendar where Jews traditionally add in an extra prayer of remembrance for their beloved deceased. I was aware of that, but there was no discussion at all about Jewish views of end of life, of death, of what happens to our souls when they're no longer embodied. It was just too difficult because the questions that were raised around six million unimaginably wrongful deaths was hard to confront. And I think in the past couple of decades, there's been a reemergence of interest in the way in which our tradition offers us means of addressing end of life and of being with and present to people who are moving from this world to the next, but also to reclaiming and investigating more carefully how we have historically for hundreds and hundreds of years, included those who are no longer embodied with us in our ongoing community. Mm -hmm. And so to a large extent, the sermon that I was privileged to offer this past All Saints Day looked at the extent of people for whom we recognize that we are called to mourn, which over time expanded from immediate family members to our teachers, to our neighbors, now to anyone of whose suffering and death we may become aware in, in a global 
communion of of embodied souls, and where Mm. we might feel called to acknowledge and perhaps commemorate the deaths of people in in certain disasters. We have memorials for 9-11. Some people are still very committed to remembering the losses that occurred, say, during Hurricane Katrina. There are any number of disasters that touch on so many of us that we can't just forget the losses of that moment. Holocaust Memorial Day, the same dynamic is at work. And then I talked about the ways in which we can look to the Torah of the lives of those who have gone before. Sometimes we recognize in somebody we are embodied with at the same time, someone who's alive with us, we recognize that person is teaching us something. We look to them. How do they do this? Famously, there are stories about uh, people who go off to, I'm going to go see how the Rebbe ties his shoes, because that will tell me something about living a holy life. How do you do the routine stuff in a sacred way? But also, we come to realize sometimes that somebody who has died, whom we didn't recognize until they were no longer with us, was really teaching us something important about how we can live, particularly how we can live our spiritual lives. So there are also mechanisms within Jewish teachings around death and dying and the role of the soul's journey after this embodiment that allow us to look to our beloved deceased as messengers between earth and heaven, as people whom we can look to for encouragement or to whom we can offer our hopes that they will add their voices to the heavenly chorus and help boost our prayers before the throne of glory. And I would venture to say that while what I'm describing is quite familiar in large parts of the Jewish world, there are many folks, particularly people who grew up around the time I did in the 50s and early 60s, where we didn't hear any of these things because talking about why and how people die could lead to questions that were still too raw Mm. to be addressed in community. Mm. And that it took shifts in experience and renewed enthusiasm, uh, thanks to certain of our honored teachers of those decades, to begin to open ourselves back up again to what we can, can do with the experience of loss and with our relationship to those who are no longer with us. So. From your point of view, I imagine there are connections and and differences. Before going there, I do want to just take a moment to honor in a profound way what you just spoke about in terms of the impact on your community and terrible, devastating, tragic loss and the reverberation of that and, and the necessity of taking time to fully begin to process and absorb the enormity of that loss before beginning to talk about anything more coming out of that. I I just, I'm very moved by that. I found, as you were speaking, a sacredness and a holiness in that deep grieving process that to me speaks very authentically of what it means to honor life um, in its fullest. And uh, hopefully anyone who is canonized as a saint in our tradition would have that sensitivity, that sensibility, that compassion, that deep and profound regard and honoring for others and for neighbors 
and for companions on this journey. And I like to think that the people we've named saints embody those values. I think that the truth of the matter is the record will show some did and some not so much, (laughs) Um, which is one of the mysteries of how one becomes canonized and what sometimes gets left out of the stories. Is that also true in your tradition? And I recognize I'm mixing metaphors, but well, that's that, that, that's okay. Uh, we can we can disentangle the metaphors later. I think that it's a human challenge to deal with the paradox of our own natures. Hmm. So I can think of people who are held in very high esteem in broad parts of the Jewish community, whom if one looks at the entirety of their biography, one has to wonder. It's like the questions that come up, well, I now I know that Picasso was a misogynist. Should I take down that Picasso from the wall? I think we, we are constantly being asked to discern, can something that is beautiful, something that is ennobling, something that uplifts us, something that is sacred, find its source in a human being who is a human being and will be filled with paradoxes. We all have terrible days. We don't want to be judged by our worst days. And we want to be careful not to judge others by their worst days. This is not a judgment that I'm making pro or con keeping your Picassos, should you have any. I'm just pointing to the paradox because I'm not sure I know the answer other than to say that, yeah, there are people who are revered and about whom one wonders, how did they manage to create this or that beautiful teaching or this liturgical innovation or be viewed as a model of of devotional? sensitivity. And I know they also did X, Y, or Z. So, you know, offline, absolutely, we can talk about them, but (laughs) I wouldn't want to engage in what's known in my tradition as Lashon Hara, which is bad speech, and which the rabbis consistently condemn as below our dignity. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, one of the biblical figures that we share who I think embodies that paradox, is Jacob, who by all accounts in both our traditions, biblically, is something of a scoundrel, and yet deeply beloved and called and honored by God, and really invited into a special role in human history as a leader, as literally a father in the faith. And I'm endlessly fascinated by his story. I have too. I have to confess, it took me decades to get the least bit comfortable with Jacob (laughs) as a, a model for much of anything. And I have to share a teaching from one of my teachers, Rabbi Judith Abrams, may her memory be for blessing, who would say, well, if you're tempted to gossip, Instead of gossiping about somebody in your immediate vicinity, talk about somebody from Genesis, because 
there is so much to wonder about, about all of them. Talk about King David. I mean, there is just endless conversation to be had about behaviors admirable and less so. And then you're talking Torah, which is always good for your soul. I think there's some truth to that. I, I think that it's a great gift that we are offered very few models of human perfection, if any, certainly not in Torah. And I would not presume to speak for your view of who might be such a model in Christian scripture. But I think that that's a great lesson for us, that we get to figure things out out of our, our, our tendencies to lean in the direction of making what are perhaps not the best choices and also to lean in another direction where we're making better choices today than we might have made previously, which in Jacob's defense, eventually, I think he came to be able to do. Yes. So I love that invitation. And I think we want to just invite you all to join us again for our next in the series of podcasts as we revisit this spiritual permeability and the gift of divine difference. And I hope that as you think about joining us, you'll also think about the ways that God is speaking to you in your own journey and calling you to step outside a little bit from your comfort zone and to engage with another in conversation, in dialogue, in discussion, and to go deeper on this journey that we share as people of faith. We hope you enjoyed this first episode of To Differ is Divine, the new podcast exploring spiritual permeability from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. We hope you'll join us next time as we explore teachings in both Christianity and Judaism that support spiritual permeability as a vital part of ongoing faith formation.